It is, if you didn't know that, a new year, and a new year really is a great opportunity to kind of look back on the past year and to look ahead with anticipation to a new year. Uh, I love the new year. One of the things I, uh, I really enjoy about the new year is just, I know this is really exciting, is getting a new daytimer. Um, amen? Right? I went out and did that yesterday at Staples, and it's just exciting because... I don't have to look at all the unfinished to-do lists out of last year. Uh, there's, there's nothing I have to look at that I didn't do. There's just 365 pages of blank opportunities. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. And I think Christians ought to enter into a new year with more optimism than anyone else. Uh, we know that the world is filled with changes. Some of those changes are for the better. Some of those changes are for the worse. But we know that our God remains the same forever, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and for forever. So I want to encourage you this morning to open your Bibles to Psalm 25. And uh, this message is what I like to call... Uh, a back-of-the-napkin kind of sermon. And what I mean by that is that I never set out to preach on Psalm 25. I kind of stumbled upon this psalm. I was reading it devotionally. And as I read it, I was struck by a lot that is in it and just kind of scribbled some notes on the back of a napkin or really on the, on the back of a little notebook that I have. And uh, the basic outline of what I'm sharing today comes from uh, that experience and just encountering that psalm in a fresh way. I actually shared some of this as a devotional with our staff and our elders on one occasion, but I kept going back to this psalm because it just ministered to my own soul. So let me begin by simply reading Psalm 25 for you. It says this. It's a psalm of David. It says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in, in you." 
May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Well, that may or may not be a familiar psalm to you. Uh, I can think of a few choruses, a few songs where maybe a line or two out of this psalm appears, but it's not like Psalm 23 or not like one of the other psalms that's sort of ingrained in our memories, one that we might know well. And I thought about titling this message, Brand New Year, Same Old Problems. Um, But I thought you probably needed more encouragement than that on New Year's Day. So I ended up titling this psalm or this message, The Alphabet of Grace. Now, the reason I chose that title is because this psalm is actually an acrostic. Uh, You can't discern that from looking at our English translations, but you can notice that there are 22 verses in this psalm. And the reason there are 22 verses in this psalm is because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And the way this psalm works is that each verse of the psalm begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if we were doing a similar thing in English, we would have a 26 verse poem and each verse of that poem would begin with a different letter of the alphabet. We would start with A, the second verse would have B and we would end with the 26th verse starting with Z. And notice it's Z and not Z, right? But that's how we would do it. This is what this psalm does. It walks through the A to Z for us. Now, not every psalm does this, but there are a few that do, and the entire book of Lamentations does this, and we might wonder, well, why did, why would anyone go to the trouble of arranging a psalm like this in an alphabetized fashion? Why would they go through it like this? Most scholars think there are numerous reasons for it. One is simply that uh, doing it this way makes it kind of like a mnemonic device. It's, it's easier to remember when we know sort of the pattern of it. Remember, Israel was an oral culture. You wouldn't have a Bible in your home and just sort of be able to go into your living room and open it up to Psalm 25. If you, if you wanted to, to know Psalm 25, you, you knew it because you had memorized it. And it's easier to memorize something when you know the pattern. It's A, B, C, D, and all of that. But I think there's actually more to it than that. Acrostics were often used as a way of covering something exhaustively. So if we wanted to cover a topic exhaustively, or if we had done so, we might say, well, this is the A to Z of suffering or something along those lines. It covers everything from start to finish and everything in between. That's what this psalm does for us. It is sort of the A to Z of dealing with the kinds of trouble we can expect to meet in this world. So we're going to make two passes at this psalm or kind of fly over it twice and consider it under two main headings. And the first thing we ought to understand is that we can and should expect all kinds of trouble in our lives. Now, some of you right now are like, oh, man, I am so glad I came to church this morning. I, I am so glad I came here so that the pastor could remind me that my life this year in 2020 or whatever, whatever, what is it now, 2023, is going to be filled with all kinds of trouble. What happened to all that optimism for the new year? Well, I want you to consider this kind of a good news, bad news type of message or a bad news, good news kind of message. There is good news, but first we need to face the reality of the bad news. 
And this psalm is recounting David's experience in this world and the kind of trouble that he met in this world. And I think we can all relate to the kinds of trouble that David experienced. So I see at least three different kinds of trouble that David met and that we can expect to meet as well. The first kind of trouble we experience is what we might call trouble from without. So listen again to verses 2 and verse 19. Verse 2 says, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. And then verse 19 says, Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. So David had trouble with what he described as his enemies or his foes, those who were in opposition to him. And if you've read through the books of First uh, and Second Samuel, you will know that David's life was filled with that kind of trouble. He had relational opposition on many occasions. Uh, you can detect that all through the Psalms as well as you look at the Psalms that he wrote. A number of the Psalms begin not just with the ascription, this is a Psalm of David, but they begin with a notation about the circumstances that prompted David to write them. So the heading of Psalm 3 reads like this, a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. I mean, think of what what kind of trouble that is, right? He's got trouble in his family. His own son wants to overtake him on the throne. Psalm 7 has this heading, a Shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. Cush was one of his enemies or foes, someone who opposed him. David had that kind of trouble. The heading of Psalm 18 says, Of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And as you read through the Psalms, you find lots of headings like that. David experienced all kinds of relational trouble and opposition. And I'll just say that I've been doing ministry long enough to know that this kind of trouble, trouble from without is one of the major categories of trouble that we can expect to experience in life. And you may be experiencing some of that trouble even now. Sometimes that, that type of trouble is found even in your own family. You, you might have relational conflict with one of your children or with one of your parents or with one of your siblings or with your in-laws. There's often tension in those types of relationships. Uh, You might be experiencing that type of trouble with your spouse or with a former spouse. Sometimes we experience this kind of trouble uh, with a friend or a former friend or a former group of friends. Sometimes it's a neighbor or a co-worker. There's just conflict. And every one of us can And I think should expect that we will experience that kind of trouble at times. As important as relationships are, they are not easy. And every one of us can expect to have trouble from without. Second kind of trouble that's described here is what we might call trouble from within. Uh, Listen again to verses 16 to 18. There David says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. So you can just make note of the words that he uses there. Loneliness, affliction, troubles, 
anguish, distresses. Have you ever felt any of those things? Well, we all have. Now, sometimes those troubles from within are related to the troubles from without. This thing is causing this internal stress or strife in our lives. But sometimes the reasons are actually just a mystery to us. So on at least two occasions in the Psalms, we find David wrestling with just that type of thing. Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 both end exactly the same way. Here's what David says at the end of Psalm 42. He says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then Psalm 43 ends like this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Right? We experience that kind of thing at times. A downcast soul, whatever we want to term it, it's trouble from within. And I point this out just to make sure that we don't suffer from some kind of super spiritual delusion thinking, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't experience those types of troubles, those kind of internal troubles in my heart or in my mind. The Apostle Paul met with lots of different types of trouble in his life and in his ministry. Not all of it was physical. I want you to listen to the way Paul described his troubles in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said this, Three times I was beaten with rods, Once I was stoned, and there he means rocks were thrown at him, right? Just to clarify. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So we might hear that list and think, well, listen, that last one is not really worth comparing to all of the other things. But that burden, that anxiety that Paul felt weighed just as heavily on him as the other things did. Live long enough and you will experience trouble from within. You know, one of my heroes in church history, many of you know this already, is Charles Spurgeon. Uh, His love for the Lord, his faithfulness to the word, his passion for the church, and his gift of preaching uh, are some of the things that have inspired me about his life. A few years back, I read a helpful book entitled Spurgeon's Sorrows that explored Spurgeon's battle or wrestle with depression, with troubles from within. I want you to listen to what he said one Sunday as he stepped up to preach. He said, I almost regret this morning that I have ventured to occupy this pulpit because I feel utterly unable to preach to you for your profit. I had thought that the quiet and repose of the last fortnight had removed the effects of that terrible catastrophe, but on coming back to the same spot again and more especially standing here to address you, I feel somewhat of those same painful emotions which well nigh prostrated me before. You will therefore excuse me this morning. 
I have been utterly unable to study. O Spirit of God, magnify thy strength in thy servant's weakness and enable him to honor his Lord even when his soul is cast down within him. Now, the background to that is that two weeks prior to that occasion, Spurgeon had been preaching to his church. The Metropolitan Tabernacle was packed out and a prankster yelled out fire in the middle of his sermon. And as people fled from that sanctuary, seven people died and 28 more were injured seriously. The papers in London blamed Spurgeon for that tragedy, and that haunted him the rest of his life, and he carried this internal trouble or sorrow. And I just want to say he was open about the trouble he experienced, and there's no shame, or there should be no shame, in experiencing trouble from within and bringing it before the Lord. A third kind of trouble that's highlighted here is the trouble with our sin. Now, this is the, the, the trouble that actually gets the most real estate in this psalm. Uh, listen to verse 7. Verse 7 says, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Uh, verse 11 says, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. In verse 18, consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. See, David knew that the deepest troubles in his life went deeper than his circumstances, deeper than his distressed state of mind. His deepest troubles were related to his sin, his rebellion against his loving creator. And he doesn't see this as a small problem, right? He refers to his iniquity as great and asks the Lord to take away all his sins. Now, again, we know David's story. We know that in spite of all his successes personally and materially and militarily, his life was also marked by sin. I mean, even if you had never read the Bible, if you, if you didn't know the Bible and you're coming from outside the church and, and you heard the name David, you would probably know two stories from the life of David. You would know the story of David and Goliath, right? Young boy, shepherd boy, takes up this sling and defeats a giant with his sling and stone. And you would probably know about the story of David and Bathsheba. Those are the two things that David is most famous for. The first one he's famous for. The second one he's infamous for. Earlier I mentioned those little superscriptions at the beginning of some of the Psalms. Psalm 51 contains this superscription. It says, A Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So David had trouble from without, he had trouble from within, and he had trouble with his sin. But again, his story is not really different from our story. And while this psalm is personal, it's clear that it's not meant to be understood as somehow unique. The petition at the very end of the psalm says this, Redeem Israel, O God, from all their troubles. In other words, they experience everything I've experienced. 
So as I said, we can and should expect all kinds of trouble in our lives. In the New Testament, James says it this way, count it pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's what we should expect. The question is, how do we count it all joy when we encounter those types of troubles? And how do we count it all joy when we experience that trouble from without, when there's relational tension in our lives? Or when we've got that trouble from within, we've just got something that weighs on our heart, produces anxiety in us. Or when we've got trouble with our sin, there's a sin that is kind of a besetting sin in our life. We've fallen into a pattern of it. What are we supposed to do with that? If every one of us can and should expect trouble in our lives, what are we supposed to do with those troubles? Well, that's what I want to explore with our second sort of flyover of this psalm. And this is the kind of New Year's Eve part of the message. If the first thing we need to know is that we can and and should expect to experience all kinds of trouble in our lives, the second thing we need to know is that we need to remember where to find help for our troubles. Uh, One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 121, begins like this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, right? Those two verses use a question and answer format. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. I actually think there's a contrast in those two verses. I think what what is being said there, it's just a reminder that all of Israel's neighbors worshipped on what were described as high places. This is the, where they would set up their altars to their various gods. And the height of the place was important because it was thought to, you know, sort of have closer proximity to the gods. And I think here the psalmist is making a contrast. My help doesn't come from the hills. My help comes from the Lord. That's where I turn. Pagans have set up their altars on the hills My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And I think this psalm points us in that same direction. So I want to point you in the direction of five things that we can do to navigate a world that is filled with trouble. The first thing we ought to do is that we ought to bring our troubles to God as a first course of action and not as a last resort. Notice how the psalm begins. To you, O Lord... I lift up my soul. Oh, my God, in you, I trust. Now, I know this seems really basic, but it's amazing how often we fail to do this. So I highlighted for you three different types of trouble that we can expect to experience that are mentioned in this psalm. And what you will find with each of them is that David brings that trouble directly before God. So he has external trouble, relational trouble. And so he prays, Let not my enemies be exalted over me. He has internal trouble, and so he prays, Turn to me and be gracious, for I am lonely and afflicted. He has trouble with his sin, and so he prays, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. This is what we ought to do. We ought to bring every trouble before the Lord, no matter how small it is, no matter how big it is. And Jesus taught us to pray this way. Think about the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. We're physical creatures, so Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. 
We're relational creatures. So Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We're spiritual creatures, so Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Name a need, name a trouble, and it is something we can bring before God in prayer. Now, I said we ought to do this as a first course of action, not as a last resort. And the reason I draw your attention to that, because I think we are so quick to look in other directions. So when we have external problems or relational problems, how often is our first course of action to turn to other people before we turn to the Lord? You know, I just need to talk to so-and-so. I just need to vent before them. When we have internal problems, how quick are we to turn to a prescription before turning to the Lord? Now, I'm not trying to dispense medical advice to you but we are way over-medicated. We're so reliant on that as a quick fix to our troubles. When we have problems with our sin, how quick are we to run and hide like Adam and Eve did? God wants fellowship with us. He's provided a way for us to have it. And we hide in our guilt and our shame. The first thing we ought to do is what David did here. We ought to call out to God, to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. You're the one who made me. You're the one who knows me. You're the one who can help with all my trouble. And I think we ignore this to our own peril. Uh, We don't sing it anymore, but one of my favorite hymns from an earlier era was, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And the first verse of that hymn says this, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And then it says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So the first commitment we ought to make at the start of this new year is to bring our troubles before the Lord as a first course of action, not as a last resort. Second thing we ought to do is we ought to learn to trust in God's sovereignty, goodness, and timing. There's a tension in this psalm, and you can see it in the contrast between the urgency of verse 2 and the assurance of verse 3. So verse 2 says, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. And then verse 3 gives us the assurance. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. So David has enemies or foes, right? His concern is that they, and they, and they posed a real threat to him. But the fear about them also posed a threat to him. And you can almost see the internal mechanics of how prayer works here. David begins praying about his enemies, right? His concern is let them not, you know, triumph over me. Don't give them victory over me. But then it's as if he reminds himself that he actually knows that in the end, no one who trusts in God will be put to shame. The people who will ultimately be put to shame, as David says, are those who are wantonly treacherous, his enemies. And this is what I mean by saying that we need to learn to trust in God's sovereignty and goodness. Nothing goes unnoticed by God. Everything will be set right in the end. 
But I also said we need to learn to trust in God's timing. Notice again, David says, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. That same theme appears again in verse 21 when it says, may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. This means that the solution to our trouble doesn't always come right away. The idea is that ultimately no one who waits for God will be put to shame, but it might look like they have been put to shame for a time. See, we have our timetable and God has his. We want instant justice. We want instant vindication, but that's not what we're promised. We would love to have the specifics. We would love to know when. Uh, Listen to what Paul says in the New Testament to encourage faithfulness and perseverance In the church at Galatia, he said, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So when will we reap? In due season or in due time. When is that? I don't know. It's in due season or due time. When the time comes due, when God decides this is when everything gets worked out. At the right time, we will reap if we do not give up. Third commitment we ought to make is that we ought to seek God's wisdom and obey it. And you can see this clearly in verses 4 and 5. And those verses say, here's David's prayer. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I will wait all the day long. David is pleading with God to guide him and to direct him. He has a hunger to know the truth. I think sometimes we approach Bible reading like it's a chore, right? I I have to get that done. Shouldn't we approach it more like it's a great delight to do this? I've always been struck with Solomon's words to his son in Proverbs chapter 2. Here's what he says. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it, like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Solomon just piles up all these verbs. Receive, treasure, make your ear attentive, incline your heart, call out, raise your voice, seek, search. If we do those things, we will find God's wisdom. And David says the same thing here. He's calling out to God. God, teach me, lead me, guide me. And God will do it. Verses 8 and 9 say, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. God instructs us. He leads us. He teaches us. And what we need to remember is that the primary way God instructs, leads, and teaches us is through his word. Now, you're in church It's the start of a brand new year, so you expect me to say this to you, right? You expect me to say something like, look, it's a new year. You ought to make a commitment this year. You ought to read through the Bible in its entirety or something along those lines, right? Make that commitment. And that is a good thing to do. I was part of a group of guys who did that this past year. It's great to do you, but my encouragement to you today is not so much 
You ought to read through the Bible in its entirety this year. My encouragement to you is that you ought to approach God's word with a sense of anticipation, that you ought to come to it like David did. Teach me your ways. Lead me in your paths. Guide me. I've shared this with you before, but my practice when I open my Bible is to pray a couple of quick prayers. One is to pray the words of Psalm 119, verse 18, which says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. And the other prayer I like to pray often is the one that the prophet Samuel was instructed to say, where he said, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And I just find when I come to God's word with that sense of anticipation, God, would you teach me? Would you guide me? Would you instruct me out of your word? It's such a fruitful experience. But even as we we think about searching for God's wisdom and discovering his truth through his word, we can't forget what verse 10 goes on to say, where it says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. This is the obedience part. It's not, we don't just read the Bible for information's sake. We want to be changed by it and shaped by it. And the way we are changed by God's word is by obeying it. We put it into practice and our lives are changed. Fourth thing we ought to do. As we come into this new year, is we ought to confess our sin and rest in God's forgiveness. Again, I'm going to read those three verses again, 7, 11, and 18. 7 says, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And verse 18, Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. See, David remembered his sins, even the sins of his youth. And our past sins sometimes will come sort of parading before us as if to remind us of just how unworthy we are of God. David's plea is that God wouldn't remember him like that, but instead that God would remember him according to God's steadfast love. Now, we understand this actually even better than David did. We say it often around here that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us in our sin. He sees us through Jesus. And one of the words the New Testament uses to describe us is the word justified. That word as it is applied to us means just as if we had never sinned. That's the good news of the gospel. That's how we stand before God, just as if we've never sinned because God has blotted out our sin. He remembers us according to his namesake. Again, in verse 11, when David appeals to God, he says, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. So on what grounds does David appeal to God for forgiveness? Notice that he doesn't come sort of downplaying the magnitude of his sin. He doesn't say, hey, look, I know I broke some of your commandments, but, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, I was under this pressure and all of that. He readily acknowledges the magnitude of his sin. My guilt is great. The basis of his appeal to God is that God would act for his namesake. And our, our confidence before God is, is his character. And then verse 18 adds this thought. Consider my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Truth is, we sin every day. I mean, we do things. We say things. 
we think things that are against what God has clearly instructed us. To confess our sins is to acknowledge before God that truth. And 1 John 1.9 gives us the best counsel around this. It says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the confidence we have before God. So we ought to confess our sin. We ought to keep short accounts with God, and then we ought to rest in that forgiveness. Final thing we ought to remember as we enter into this new year is that we ought to draw near to God knowing He will draw near to us. You know, there's a a kind of closeness that we can experience with God. Listen again to verses 14 and 15. There it says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. You know, the Bible uses lots of different relational terms to describe our relationship with God. God is our king, right? We relate to him as his subjects. God is our father, and we relate to him as his children. God is our shepherd, and we relate to him as his sheep. But I think the one that's used here is is staggering. The friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him. God is our friend. Now, there's still reverence here. Verse says that the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him. And I think it's important that we don't take all the knee-knocking out of that expression, the fear of the Lord. But that's precisely the wonder of our relationship with God. He is rightly worthy of all our reverence, all our fear. And yet, he calls us into a relationship that can be called friendship. He brings us into his counsel. This is a promise for us that the friendship of the Lord, the closeness of the Lord is for those who fear him. James says it this way in the New Testament. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's the promise. We draw near to God and he will draw near to us. And just as we think about, you know, this new year we're entering into, I thought it would be fitting for us to end this morning simply by praying the Lord's Prayer together. So would you join me in doing that? I think it'll be on the screen behind me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.